Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome to this week's podcast. This week, we're going to be talking about uh, Martin Scorsese's uh, 2004 film uh, and Leonardo DiCaprio vehicle, The Aviator. Peter, welcome. Welcome. Wait, Scorsese directed this? <laughs> Scorsese. Are you, sh- are you sure? <laughs> um, you know, I, I'm sure that many people would disagree. This is my favorite of his films. Really? Mm-hmm. Like, this what is about, my number one film of his. What about By, what by about, a long uh, shot. And I like what? a lot of his movies, but this is kind of, this is kind of the big one for me. Do you think this tops Goodfellas? I don't know. I mean, you could argue that maybe Goodfellas is a better movie, but but this to me is more interesting, and Hughes is is uh, more interesting than Henry Hill. Yeah, it's just. Uh, I mean, he really. I mean, I mean, Goodfellas crackles like the whole way through. You know, I mean, that movie is. Um, that's a that's a tough one to top. I, I didn't say this opinion. was a better movie. I said that yeah. this is my it's favorite, your favorite film okay. of his. Like, All right, fair like, enough. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I don't know. I mean, I, yeah. I just think that there's a lot There's a lot here. And this is kind of like, it's Scorsese at, at the top of his game. Like, he's, he's you know, this is, this is 15 years after Goodfellas. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, he wasn't a rookie for Goodfellas, but he's much, much more mature in his filmmaking in this movie. And I'm interested in Hughes. I love anything about the thirties. I'm interested in aviation. Like it's just, it's well done. And, and, uh, and I think Kate Blanchett is terrific in this. And you like movies about bosoms. And so Howard Hughes. Howard. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So let me do the, uh, the summary. So this movie is about 20 years in Howard Hughes life, which demonstrates his rise from rich playboy to filmmaker that to successful filmmaker to aviation mogul. And uh, during that time, he has a he begins his decline, which uh, into either OCD or just drug addiction and OCD and some kind of madness that he ended up uh, play that plagued him for the rest of his life and agoraphobia. I'm not sure exactly, but he was clearly nuts. Uh, And and that in many ways is probably what he's known for more than anything else is being nuts the rest of his life yeah and i think sort of like the extremeness of his untreated mental illness yeah and, and they he's trying to show the early uh the start of his decline in a way and it, it's picks up speed a little bit later bring in the, the movie bring in the milk bring in the milk <laughs> bring in the milk right but you know the they, old milk they... and boobs by the way the whole movie <laughs> I read that uh, I read that we're jumping hell a bit, but I read that when he actually did seclude himself into the screening room, he was yeah. in there for four months and he only ate chicken, chocolate bars and milk for four months. Man, that dude must have been constipated. <laughs> it's, a, it's a low residue diet. <laughs> oh, my God. But, you know, in the even in the beginning, and this is something I didn't notice the last time I saw it, you know, even in the very beginning, he's repeating himself, you know, like it's very mm-hmm. subtle. And in the beginning, like it's done in a more winning way, like, oh, he's just quirky and eccentric. And then 
as the movie progresses, it sort of takes over. But I hadn't noticed in the past that even in the very early sort of 1935 scenes when they're making Hell's Angels, he does repeat himself a couple times. Like mm. it's it like it's sort of implying that maybe he always had it, although I don't know if that's true or not. But at least in the film, they imply he always had it. Uh, I would like um, I'd like f- six chocolate chip cookies uh, <laughs> with eight chips well spaced around the cookies. <laughs> yeah, when I was reading about him a little bit, apparently <clears throat> that his obsession with food. Um, with counting and food was was there pretty early, and he did it with peas a lot. They show him, I think, uh, in the scene in yeah, the, the coconut the cl- grove, the coconut grove where he he counts peas. But apparently, he did that constantly. Yeah, I read and, he had. Um, a, I read that he had a special fork that he ate his peas with. You don't have a special fork. <laughs> <laughs> um. So uh, no. let's just jump in. So we begin. Uh, there's a brief scene where he's being bathed naked by his mother. He's naked. She's not. Um, and there's sort of hints that, you know, he's down in Houston as a kid. And there's uh, there's illness in the city of Houston. By the way, I used to live in Houston. It's not that different. Um, <laughs> and, and um, you know, he's sort of inculcated to fear germs at a very young age. And the mother sort of conveys to him at a young age in the sort of opening scene that, you know, he's not so safe out in the world, which who knows, but that's at least sort of implied to be the genesis of perhaps his OCD later in life. I, I gotta say that's my absolute least favorite thing in the entire movie. <laughs> I, I, and I would agree. It's, it's a big departure in tone from the entire rest of the film. Right. And it, it does not, it doesn't explain anything. And even if you're going to buy the, you know, dime store Freudian uh, attempt and you know what, having, wait, wait, things having, your mother says to you when you're naked, don't affect you. <laughs> maybe it's what she does more than what she says, but we're getting off topic. <laughs> but you know, look, I haven't read Freud for, you know, at least 25 years, but, um, I, I don't remember exactly what Freud describes the genesis of uh, certain neuroses and obsessive compulsive disorder being, but I'm, I'm sure that it wasn't that simple anyway. So I just, even if you're, even if you're a psychoanalyst, I don't know how this is going to somehow no. add to the story. Um, so, but the movie really gets underway right with the making of Hell's Angels. Right, which, you know, which, the, which was not his first film, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had made something else before, but this is what he was really trying to make his name with. Right. And this is, you know, at this point, he, you know, he, he his, his father, I think, made money from, from uh, oil drill bits. Right, the Hughes drill bit. And, um, you know, as this is the point early in the sort of petroleum, relatively early in the petroleum industry, you know, like that's where... Um, the Rockefellers got their money. So there were a bunch of people who became extremely wealthy from, you know, the early oil industry. And I guess Hughes family with the invention of that drill bit, um, they, they had their share, uh, they garnered their share from that. So he, he was sort of a, you know, a child of a, a wealthy, uh, family and decided to, and he, he wanted to make movies. So, right, and his parents. Uh, his parents died when he was young, and yeah. he headed out to California. Right, um, <clears throat> um, and you know this. The whole first part of the movie is fun. Like 
you know, he's very winning at this point in his life. Like he's young, he's good looking, you know, he's famous. He's bombastic, and, and the, you know. He's, right, and the, the whole making of Hell's Angels is presented as kind of like a fun adventure. You know, maybe not so much for the people around him, but for him. Yeah. You know, like, and he's he's eclectic and eccentric at this point, but not crazy, you know. There's, there's sort of hints when he asks Louis B. Mayer for, you know, another camera when he has tons of them. But, you know, for the most part, you know, this is a very, very enjoyable part of the movie. Right, and he's sort of, maybe he's eccentric, but he's proven right because... He he uses all those cameras and he makes a movie that uh, is sort of a groundbreaking film and it's it's a big hit, um, or it's at least a big enough hit that you know he recovers right. He's mm-hmm. the subject of a lot of bad press during it, and you know and DiCaprio you know DiCaprio does a good job of aging over the course of the movie. Like he's got a younger man's haircut in this scene. Mm-hmm. You know, in the in the Hell's Angels part, you know he he's more dapper. He's he's dressing better. You know, like they do a good job of showing the progression of time and sort of the accumulation of injuries that Hughes sustains. Right. I mean, if you Google photos of Hughes, you, you don't see many photos after uh, like 47 or whenever the movie ends. Um, he really and he, he looks pretty old uh, for his age, whether around the time he testified in the in the in Congress. Right. And they and he also, you know, he changes his voice a little bit too. Like he changes Hughes' voice as the movie goes on. <clears throat> I will actually watch in, in preparation for this podcast, I actually watched Hell's Angels. Hmm. That must have been painful. It, you know, it's it's not at all I had never seen it before. I had seen just sort of the aviation scenes, but I watched the whole movie. It's not at all what I thought it was gonna be. It's a love triangle. Like it's it's about the love triangle almost more than it's about the flying. It's about two brothers, one of whom is very brash, the other of whom is very shy, and they sort of court this same woman. And then they're sort of thrown into the mix. They have a friend who's a German who has to leave England to fly against them. So it's sort of half a flying movie, but it's really kind of this sort of romantic love triangle. It's not bad. It holds up pretty well. Hmm. You know that it has, interestingly, it has... Um, it has one color segment in it. Really? Yeah, and it's the only color footage of Gene Harlow that exists. Hmm. That's interesting. That was pretty interesting. I didn't know they had any color process uh, at that point. That movie didn't it come out in nineteen thirty or something? I think I think the movie starts in thirty five. But you know they've had color a long time. Did you notice by the way? the trick that they did with the color in the movie. So I don't know if you noticed this. The first, like all the Hell's Angels scenes are filmed differently than the rest of the movie. They're filmed in two color to sort of emulate early color film. And then as you move into sort of World War II era, hmm. it, it switches to full color. But that's why like the Hell's Angels scenes have that sort of odd shading and tone to all the colors. Hmm. And everybody's hair looks kind of strange. It's because it's filmed in two color because it's supposed to be before the sort of widespread advent and use of technicolor. You mean the, um, the the regular storytelling in the movie as opposed to the actual scenes of you talk- right the actual right, right. the, 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 the first twenty minutes thirty minutes of the movie is filmed in essentially two color. Hmm. You know, I didn't even 
I didn't even notice. I just remember the yeah, Hell's Angels scenes, but I, I watched it, you know, like a couple weeks ago. So, um, right. So it's just to sort of, just sort of, I think to put the viewer more in the era of the movie. No, it was 1930. You know, by the way, 1930, it came out November you know, 15th. Um, you know, apropos of nothing, just since we're talking about film, mm-hmm. um, did you know that Technicolor no longer exists? Like, yeah. So the movie shifts to sort of full color. And then, you know, I don't know, however many years ago, 10 or 15 years ago, Technicolor was abandoned. Mm-hmm. And like the actual machines that make Technicolor film have been dismantled. Mm-hmm. So like you literally couldn't shoot a film in Technicolor today if you wanted to. It's like, it's like the Saturn V. Like we couldn't build a Saturn V and go to the moon today because the machines that built the Saturn V don't exist anymore. I don't think there's any more Kodachrome film either. You know, like even I think a lot of, you know, technologies, imaging technologies and things back then are just they get abandoned after a while. Right. Well, there's no money in pursuing it. Anymore. Right. There's, there's it's a huge Polaroids. loser. You can still buy Polaroids that have been refurbished. Mm-hmm. There are third party companies that sell Polaroid cameras and people still make the film. But that's about it. But anyway, right. but but it was interesting that in the beginning, um, in the beginning, I think it's like it's like the first five or seven years of the movie is filmed essentially in two color. But anyway, we digress. Um, and then, you know, again, sort of keeping with what I was saying, like it's a lot of fun. Like the scene where he meets um, the scene where he meets uh, Hepburn, he flies onto the, the the location where she's shooting. You know, I mean, he's really, really an appealing guy. You know. Mm-hmm. He's wealthy, he's debonair, he can fly at a time when flying was probably the height of glamour. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, this is, you know, 20 years after the Wright brothers. Yeah. Yeah, no. And he, and he, he I guess he kept it up for at least 20 years or so where he kept doing oh, it. Oh, forever. Yeah. yeah, no, I think he flew a long, long time. Um, and the, uh, the scene, the scene where, uh, the premiere of Hell's Angels is great. You know, there, you know, they emphasize, I think the scene where they premiere Hell's Angels is interesting because it emphasizes two things. One is that he's a little scared of all the crowd, mm-hmm. right? And then he's also, it sort of, it kind of plays up for the first time that he's his hearing is bad. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's kind of the first little chink in the armor that you see, although it's played a little bit for laughs when he meets Hepburn, you know, and she's talking about how she's an outdoor girl, and she says, "I sweat, and you're deaf." Mm-hmm. Right? That's that's me doing Kate Blanchett doing Catherine Hepburn. Sounds pretty much like Kate Blanchett. <laughs> but you know, and again, it's you know, it's just done in a, a friendly way. Like you really don't see things start to turn until maybe forty-five or fifty minutes into the movie, and you start to see more and darker layers to his personality. Mm-hmm. I just, I don't know if you ever feel like, yeah, I mean, I'm getting ahead of the plot, but I don't feel, um, you know, when you're trying to, like Citizen Kane, right, which uh, admittedly I haven't seen in a while, tries to explain the inner life of Hearst, right? Charles Foster, well, Charles Foster Kane. Right, Kane, Hearst, whatever, yeah. I guess if they didn't win the lawsuit, right? So it's Kane, not Hearst. <laughs> <'Cause>, yeah. <laughs> um, right, but, 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 right, but 
Citizen Kane, I mean, I mean, they can they can do anything they want because you know they can show the childhood scenes where he's taken from his parents while he's playing in the snow with the sled. True, and it's it, right. I mean, it's, he's literally it's more playing fictional, in the right. snow with the sled. In that famous scene where Agnes Moorhead is signing away the son's mm-hmm. basically life. He's visible through the back window in that shot the whole time, playing in the snow, happy. And it's like literally the last time he's ever happy in a movie, practically. Right. Um, but I guess I guess there's a little bit of relationship between this movie and that movie. I mean, they're, um, they're both sort of, uh, you know, this movie uh, in a way harkens back to a type of film like Citizen Kane that's a, that's about a an oversized um, personality. Who very wealthy, powerful, right, and 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 quirky, and trying to understand him in, in a way. So you're trying to get some insight into his into his uh, soul, into his his uh, neuroses, his drives, his you know to, to get a sense of, to learn something about maybe broader uh, broader aspects of humanity or, or things that'll apply to us. And and in this movie. They achieve that in in bits, you know. I like the scene where he meets with Alan Alda, and he, he and and he has certain moments either where uh, of stress or of triumph, where you in little bits you can sort of identify with him or maybe feel something um, to understand something about him, right? But it's not. Uh, a lot of it is 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 very well made and and pretty looking, well shot, of course. But I don't sort of get this sort of sense of satisfaction that I learned something really. Uh, you know, that's interesting. I I don't know. Like I I felt like very, I was very much sort of along for a great ride on this one. Mm. Like I enjoyed hanging out with Howard Hughes for three hours as this went on. And, and I also kind of like, I, I felt for him, like, like, you know, even when he's kind of nuts mm-hmm. or very nuts, like you can kind of understand like where he's at least coming from. Even if, you know, like you can see that he's trapped in it. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Like, uh, I just, I just, I, I liked it. And I, I kind of, like I said, I identified with the way that he was portrayed and he's interesting and ambitious and, you know, like kind of, for better or for worse, you're along for a big ride in this movie. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't dislike it. I just, I kind of have mixed feelings about it. I guess, and, yeah, that's and you do, you do, you identify with him, and you do appreciate the tragedy in those scenes, and it, it is tragedy because you can see how he, um, how much he lost, and how. It would have been possible if circumstances were different. He he maybe could have gotten treatment, or he he had a chance not to end up being this being a total nut. You know, the the movie's sort of the movie's trying to show you a side of Howard Hughes that people don't remember because he's essentially remembered as a, as the the guy with long uh, fingernails and and long right. hair and jars of urine. Right. Right, and, and walking around with boxes of Kleenex on his feet. Right. So And the Spruce Goose. I mean, he's also remembered for the Spruce Goose, I think. Right, you know, which is a great name. Um, it's not Spruce! <laughs> 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 and, 
And but you know, and the other thing maybe he's remained for, remembered for is Ava Gardner's uh, Ava Gardner's bosom, but um, but she's not the one in the outlaw. That's Jane Russell. Sorry. I think it's Jane Russell's bosom. You're Jane Russell's to. bosom, right. Although Ava Gardner's bosom is nothing to write on the <laughs> Yes, I has nothing to sneeze at. You know, by the way, just before we get away from Ava Gardner, um, Kate Beckinsdale in a small part is terrific yeah. as Ava Gardner. I mean, I mean, just just to, to, to jump to cast for a minute, mm-hmm. who isn't in this movie? Yeah. Right? I mean, Kate Blanchett won Best Actress. He actually should have won for Best Actor, but I mean, Alan Alda, Ian Holm of Alien fame, Gwen Stefani <sighs> in a small but memorable role as Harlow, Jude Law, Willem Dafoe. Yeah, Jude Law's got Grant a... Spiner. Yeah, I know. Jude Law's got such a small. There are a bunch of guys that have really small parts. They're in one well, scene. Well, it's funny, because you, know? you don't know like what's going to be a big part or not. Like you know, like Gwen Stefani's there Alec, functionally for one scene, right? And then there's Alec Baldwin's got a pretty pretty big part as a right, right. Uh, and and um, John C. Riley is good as a sort of beleaguered Noah Dietrich. Mm-hmm. And like when Jude Law shows up, you don't realize that he's you know uh, he's only in that one scene. Like it's just that's it, and he's gone. Right. There are a lot of throwaway. Uh, cameos, almost cameos. Although, you know who I think deserves a little bit of a special nod is Adam Scott, who plays his press agent. Hey, boss. Yeah. You know, there's, there's, and he's only in two scenes, but he gives, he kind of gives DiCaprio a run for his money uh, in, in a movie where everything is built around DiCaprio. Like the very first time you see him at the Coconut Grove, and he's, you know, DiCaprio is trying to talk about the cameras and the situation and, and Adam Scott is just totally taken in by the girls and the scene. And yeah. that's that great line where DiCaprio goes, well, I'm glad that's settled. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, because he's being completely ignored by his employee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. Adam Scott, he, he's very good in this. Um, um, and then, you know, the, the Hepburn romance, you know, it's funny because when you read about Hughes or you read about Hepburn, like, they don't figure large in each other's kind of biographies. But this movie really, really magnifies that relationship. And again, I mean, they both had a lot of people in their lives. Right. Well, especially um, Spencer Tracy for her, right? So Right. Right. But, I mean, it's interesting that they chose to focus on her. They could have chose to focus on any one of the many women he was with throughout his adult life. Mm-hmm. But, I guess, but I guess it also plays to the audience because the audience knows who Catherine Hepburn is. Yes, more so than Gene Harlow, for sure. And uh, um, right, right. Apparently, Gene in Russell. real life, Hughes did not like Harlow. Like, if he, yeah, apparently, did they did that. go to the they did go to the premiere together, but he apparently he had, didn't want anything to do with her. He didn't like her, right? Um, and that, and Gwen Stefani doesn't look a ton like Gene Harlow, but close enough. <laughs> <clears throat> um, I love this scene, by the way. When I think, I think one of the very best scenes in the film is when he takes um, Kate Blanchett uh, Hepburn flying the first time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's right after the scene where they leave Jude Law, I believe. Um, and, and they go flying and it's because he really kind of lets his hair down. You know, he kind of is open about the fact that he's covered the wheel, the, the steering wheel of the plane in cellophane 
And then he lets her drink from his milk bottle. Like you can see right. he's thinking about it. Like, can I let her in? Is she safe? Is she clean? Mm-hmm. And, and like, that's a really good moment. Like you really kind of see his sort of inward, like inner self kind of relax around her when she, when he lets her drink the milk. Right. She's her, she's his main um, partner in the movie. Right. And he's, he's clearly, you know, she shows back up when he's, when he's locked himself in the screening room and, he um, he shuts her out, but yeah, she's clearly. I think she serves to illustrate. Maybe she was or wasn't a, his confidant in real life to that extent, but she serves to illustrate the the closest he'll come to having a real confidant. And he's still, even so, he still keeps her at arm's length a lot of the time, right? I mean, he right, you know, some. He, I mean, he. He doesn't really talk much. He doesn't talk about her. She talks a lot, you know. And and after he crashes the H one racer, he says to her, "Gate, I get these ideas. Sometimes I, I think I'm gonna lose my mind." You know, mm-hmm. like like there's that scene where he does keep actually kind of really just tells her like, "I I think things that aren't real," or I you know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. I'm obsessed with things that don't matter. Like he basically just tells her. Right. Although it's funny because he essentially sabotages the relationship. Like, like it's implied that she sort of leaves him because, you know, he's he kind of moves on. Like, uh-huh. he's obsessed with other things and, and she's not the center of his life. Whereas Spencer Tracy is the center of her life and is, you know, is able to sustain that in a more deep and meaningful and longer way for her. Yeah. You know, Kate Blanchett is not pretty, but she's attractive. Like, those are two different things. Like, she's very attractive in this movie, but you wouldn't call her pretty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. I I don't... I, no, it's all right. Go ahead. Go ahead. You go ahead. No, that's it's fine. I love the scene when they go, by the way, to her parents, and her ex-husband is there. <laughs> Laddie, Laddie. <laughs> Yeah, the, actually, that yeah, I forgot about that. that the, her household scene is is amazing, right? The father, the urologist. We're all socialists, yeah. Mm-hmm. The mother, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And I have more of that airplane guff. I wonder. I want, and yeah, he boy does he bristle. I wonder if there's any truth to that part. I did, you know I read that she didn't like Luddy's name. And she had him change his name just because she didn't like it. Like when they were married, like that must have been an interesting marriage. Hmm. Like my wife pants. could ask a lot of me. I don't know if my wife could ask me to change my name because she didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> she felt bad, by the way. I read I read this and stuff about her. She apparently felt very guilty about her first marriage to Ludlow. Apparently uh, in real life. Uh, Hepburn felt that she didn't treat him particularly well, and she always kind of felt that he was much, much nicer to her than she deserved, which is an interesting observation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, the the film sort of moves into the whole sort of second half of the film is really dominated by his illness and his struggles, like his early victories are behind him. He struggles with the the Hercules slash Spruce Bruce. He he struggles with Alan Alda, Owen uh, Brewster, and the CWA and Juan Trip. He right, struggles right, with right. dad. 
Yeah. Right. And and there's kind of a sense that like he's sort of spending more and more and getting less in return as time passes. Yeah. Um I'm not a huge Alec Baldwin fan, but he's very good in this. Yeah. He he's he's a pretty he's a really lizard like character in this, you know. And you know, he's also not in a ton of scenes, but like for mm-hmm. example, like the bit where he shows up at the dinner when he's sitting with Faith Demerig and the other women, sorry, the the other couple from TWA, and they have this sort of like back and forth about like the drapes on the the constellation, mm-hmm. you know, or or the scenes of um, him at his headquarters in New York, or the talking through the door. I mean, there's mm-hmm. you know, it's just a few scenes, but but Baldwin does a good job. It's like best use of a pipe. As, a, as an actor's <laughs> prop. He blows the smoke ever. through the keyhole. Yeah, like he's always got the pipe, and somehow just, the pipe is perfect somehow. Like it, it just it gives him this uh, detached kind of air. And then, right, the only time he actually uses it is to try to torture him by <laughs> blowing smoke. Right, he knows it'll upset him. Well, he's constantly trying to, you know, take him off guard and upset him. Well, sort of like, or the, the way that the Alan Alda, Owen Brewster character, like he intentionally puts a thumbprint on the glass that he gives Hughes to drink out of because he knows it'll rattle. And then he threatens him with, you know, he's going to call him out in front of Congress. And, you know, that's the kind of final victory that Hughes has is is actually being able to testify and do well. Right. And, and this, you know, there's a lot of scenes where you think Hughes is kind of down and out and they kind of turn it, you know, like he does, he does rally it several times in the movie. Right. You know, or he finds a way around his problems. And his problems are usually indistinguishable from himself. You know, like like when he's right. and when he's at the when he's at Owen Brewster's apartment, uh, you know, he, like that scene where he keeps paying attention to the painting of the llama. Yeah. And again, at the time you're like, what's happening here? What's happening? And then he uses it during the testimony to sort of point out like that he flew on Pan Am planes, right? Mm-hmm. When he went to Peru, and he's able to sort of like take this small detail and throw it back in his face in a way that humiliates Brewster. Right. And he and he's correct, you know, like when when they're having their lunch in the at uh, the at the senator's office, you know, he says, you know, I keep I keep lapsing into his voice because I like the way he talks. Do you want to go to war with me? Yeah. Do you really want to do that? Like, and he sort of implies like, like I'm not perfect and I have disadvantages, but don't think I'm not a man with resources. Right. I didn't get here by maybe I start out as a sort of a playboy, but I'm not to be trifled with. Right. And and I think I don't know if it's my favorite line, but I think it's one of the best lines in the film. Maybe it's my favorite line is, you know, the way like when he's turning the tables on Brewster during the CAB hearings, when he says, do you know how many times you went to Juan Tripp's office in the last six months? Mm -hmm. Would you like me to tell you (laughs) like clearly implying like I've had you follow. Right. Right, like, like my, you've got people working for you, fine, and so do I. Yeah, and I'm and, you know, right, and, and like, he's great a, at paranoia, you know. So, <laughs> you know, he's messing right, but with it's, the pro. And it's a great moment where he turns the whole table, you know, of the entire hearing on him. Yeah, it's really the most heroic sort of end of the movie, which is bittersweet because 
he basically, you know, he's starting to spiral and then he, he really pulls back out at this hearing and it's he, at the end he's, he really walks out as a hero, right? I, I doubt oh, that yeah. was, I doubt that was true, but everyone's well, no, well, I, you know, if you go on YouTube, you can watch the actual hearings because mm-hmm. people have pulled out the clips mm-hmm. that match the movie and it's pretty close. Okay. So when he leaves, it's, they I, do. I was actually surprised at how close it looked. I actually would have been happy with a lot more artistic license, but they did it pretty well. Yeah. So, so if he does, you know, so if he did walk out of hero, I mean, he really pulled it out because he'd already spent four months in the screening room with bottles of urine and milk and, <laughs> He'd already. He will hold the bag out at a forty-five <sighs> degree angle. Yeah, he was way past chocolate chip cookies and peas at that point. <laughs> Although, and again, and again, who knows if Ava Gardner helped him that way or not? But it, it at least implied that you know he had to have help to sort of get to the point where he could come to the you know to the Senate and testify. Right. Um, can I shift gears for a second? Mm-hmm. You know, this movie is an ode to many things, but it's also an ode, I think, to model work. Like, there's some CGI in this, but most of the flying scenes are models. Hmm. And they look great. Hmm. Like, I'm continually disappointed by CGI. Like, it just takes me out of the movie, you know, and I'm just aware that there's no sort of physical presence to it. But the most of this is is models you know like the um the 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 h1 racer the hercules itself you know Mm -hmm. the constellation like they you know they built they built full-size props or they used planes that they had um but i mean the, the the flying scenes look terrific and you really feel like it's a plane and not just pixels Mm -hmm. there's something about the texture and the lighting that it's not fully right when it's CGI yeah, yet. Yeah, and, and you know, I think, you know, modern audiences, and granted, this was 2004, but I think, you know, modern audiences, like, your eye can just pick out the CGI almost all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but the models, I don't know, like, I like I am, again, impressed by model work, you know, and I, I, and I know that they did some motion control work, but, like, for example, the scene at the end of the movie where the Hercules flies, Uh you know, it's very, very convincing. Like you really get a feeling of the weight and mass of the plane. Yeah. You know, and how, and how like it's it's dangerous and they don't know what's going to happen. You know, I don't know, like whoever did the model work for this, uh, really, really, they, they, they did their, they, they earned their keep. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So, so Hughes, what happened? You know, so, so this movie ends around like 47, 48, basically after the hearings. Hughes ended up still when he died he, in 1976. Yeah, yeah, he, he died in the 70s. He was, I think he was 70 or 70. He died in 1976. Um, at that point, he'd, he'd basically spent decades as a loner you know in the, in the 60s and i think part of the 70s he spent a lot he basically had moved to vegas. vegas he lived on right. a couple floors of the desert inn he ended up which is by the way now the win he ended up buying oh, is it really? yeah, the, the <laughs> desert inn um uh, steve Wynn uh knocked it down to build the win 
So there's no more yeah, that's interesting. But Hughes, you know, there's a lot of. Um, I mean, there's tons of great stories about him in Vegas. I mean, you used to live out there. I imagine they must still talk about Hughes out there. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff there. I mean, he, he um, part of town is Summerlin. That part of town is actually he bought it for like twenty cents an acre or something like that. And it's named after his aunt, I think, or his his mother's maiden name, I think, something like that, or his aunt um, was named Summerlin. But um, yeah, I mean, he he owned like one third of the casinos at one point, and then he ran afoul of the gaming commission for being being a monopolist. But he really, at that point, just fought everybody, and he was totally. Uh, uh, he was a recluse at that point, but he, you know, he bought the desert Inn because they were trying to kick him out so they could use the rooms. That's true. <laughs> and he, he lived in the desert Inn for like two years or something like that. And he, he, he took up like one or two floors of this casino and the casino, they don't make money off the rooms, right? They make money. People losing their money in the casino. The rooms are there just so they'll go stay and lose their right, money. Lose money. So the casino finally, you know, told them you have to get out because we've asked you to leave multiple times. And, you have to leave. We're kicking you out because those rooms that you're sitting on, granted, you're paying a room rate, but that's lower than what we'll actually make from people losing their money in the casino. And he, <laughs> so he, he basically, he just, he bought it. He just pay overpaid and he basically bought the whole casino. At that point, he discovers that uh, inadvertently that this casino just makes a ton of money. Like, I, I guess he didn't really think about it. So when he discovers that, he starts buying up a bunch of casinos. And then he owned like 30 or 35% of the of all the gaming in, in town. And then they started cracking down on him. But, and then uh, so did he, did he like, did he have a gaming license that he lost? I haven't heard this story. He fought for a while. And I think in the end, he kind of bargained and maybe... I forget if he sold one or, you know, he gave some concessions, but he still ended up basically owning it for a long time. And when, when he died, he, he was still a, a billionaire in the seventies, you know? So if you, in today's dollars, he was a multi, I mean, he, he'd be one of the richest men in the country still at his death. Hmm. So he, it's not like he lost his money. He just, he had a very peculiar yeah. sort he, of sad he life. With, he died with two and a half billion in assets so i believe when he died he was the richest person on earth maybe with the he was the richest american for sure and he may have you know like he was right up there with queen elizabeth as among the richest humans on the earth yeah and you know that's 1976 dollars which is you know yeah is really i mean there was hyperinflation right after that so right. he one of my favorite huge stories that they don't really talk about is the, you know the ice station zebra story didn't he, he he called the station he liked the movie so he didn't he he, t- he bought the tv station or <laughs> right, something he, he bought well he, he had yeah because he couldn't he wanted to watch movies at certain times and he just discovered it was easier to buy uh one of the local tv stations so that he could basically tell them what to show and when to show yeah, it yeah he would program and, his own thing Right, this is like the, the the earliest you know the earliest vcr i guess you could call it <laughs> pretty expensive uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, whatever. But they were saying that he would watch, you know, Ice Station Zebra multiple times per day. And they were saying that 
like some of his employees estimated he watched it 150 times, which I guess if you compare it to the, how much some people watch Star Wars, isn't that eccentric, but for its time, you know? Yeah. And apparently he would watch it twice a night. Like they would show this, uh, the station would show Ice Station Zebra at 2 a.m. and then again at 5 a.m. And that was how people in Vegas knew that Hughes was in town. <laughs> like when Ice Station Zebra came on. Um, the movie, you know, it ends on a dark note. I mean, I'm not jumping, I'm not done done, but I'm just sort of moving to the end. Mm-hmm. I mean, the movie ends on a, you know, like a paradoxically dark note. Like he, he wins the hearings with Brewster. Um, he flies this Bruce Goose, right? Cause he threatens in the hearing that if it doesn't fly, he'll, he'll leave the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, he has this, way of the future way of the future way of the future like he's trapped he's trying to say the phrase right and he can't yeah um and and that's really where the movie ends and like and, and the, i mean i guess they given what the audience knows or what we know about Hugh, they kind of have to end in a way to hint at the terrible things to come yeah the way of the future is not so good and ironically you know that's kind of what his real talent was because you can, you could reduce him sort of to a, his movie making more or less to sort of being a playboy to some extent, right? But the one thing he, he was right about was he, he was always sort of forward looking and he would move into things early and do them maybe obsessively right. or crazily. Whether it's audio and audio in the movies or casinos, or flush rivets yeah. on a plane, right? Speed or right. Or, or right or, or buying casinos. I mean anything. And uh, he was willing to take gambles, and his instincts were frequently right, um, even if maybe his motivations were uh, uh, peculiar to say the least. But you know he, you know he died. What year did he die? Seventy six. I think. I mean, what year did Anaphronil come out? Like, when was Anaphronil first used for OCD? That was the first OCD drug, and it's not too long after. You know, like if he had lived just a few more years, you know, he might have had access to treatment. Couldn't they treat you know, him like with some? You know, like uh, they must have had something else before that. You know, like, uh, did any, any depressants well, no, but work I think, or? I, well, but I think, I think for OCD, like that was, did you ever read the boy who couldn't stop washing? That's kind of like, that was like the landmark book about OCD. Mm. Uh, but I mean, I, I mean, when I read that many years ago, I mean, they, they talk about, and that was kind of the first, the first drug that could really help people with OCD. And I think it came out in the, maybe the early eighties, like mm. he just missed it. You know what I mean? He just missed it. It's kind of sad, he, you know. He like, wouldn't have. I mean, like he wouldn't. There's not he wouldn't a lot have been of people treated. with. You know, that's well, the thing. He probably yeah, at that point, you, you, maybe he would have been. He would have refused or whatever. But, but it's just it's just an interesting idea that like the answer was, or at least an answer was just around the corner for him. But you know, I bet you they could have found something with whatever you know, MAOIs or something, or or uh, even uh, maybe ECT or something. Like maybe the guy could have gotten something that that would have worked, yeah, right? Yeah. Although I don't know if they did. I, I mean, was when was OCD even first characterized? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like I know. Like I don't, you know, like what DSM does the does OCD first appear? I don't know the answer to that. Um, you're more of a music guy than I am, mm-hmm. but uh, I think the soundtrack to this is tremendous. 
Every Scorsese movie has a great soundtrack. Yeah, you know, he's got yeah, he's got an ear for pieces, but you know, the sort of one bit after the next. I think I think when he takes Kate flying that very first time with the milk, Moon Glow by Benny Goodman is playing mm-hmm. in the background. I don't know. Like from sort of every every little bit of this, and I love music from the thirties and forties or that style. Like some of this is modern stuff like Loudon Wainwright. Big band um, stuff like you like. Yeah. That. Yeah. But it, it sounds good and it works well. Like it kind of makes you wanna you know, go to the coconut grove and and run around with those people. It looks like it looks like an awfully good time. I think you know. Listen, I think in the twenties, certainly in the twenties, people were having a good time. I don't know the thirties, probably not so much. <laughs> well, no, but but certainly, people of their wealth were. Right. Right. I mean, these are supposed to be the wealthy, wealthy people doing well. True. They were still in Hollywood and they're still doing well and they were still drinking even though it was illegal. Right, exactly. Right. When when did exactly what year was Prohibition? Um the Volstead Act, right? That's what it was called. Yeah, it was the I gotta I gotta look it up. I don't remember what uh what year it started. I'll have to edit this one down, by the way. Um, Passed the house in 1919. 1920, I guess? No. Yeah, sometime right around there. A couple of other things just to touch on before we wrap up. Um, The scene with the cigarette girl. Yeah. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. Yeah. Cigar, cigarette, sensen. I had to look up what sensen was. Sensen is a is like a it's kind of like a, a mint mm-hmm. that's sort of like somewhere between a mint and gum. Hmm. So sensen, I don't think you can get any more, but it was like called a breath perfume. But I had to look up what sensen was. Hmm. But good lord, is she good looking? The, the cigarette oh, yeah. girl. Of course. Mother of God. Well, they're, they're giving you a sense that he is, I mean, he made the most of his position, I'm sure. Right. But he's also able to engage with her in a way, you know, like, yes. like the Adam Scott character is just sort of like a, an, like a crass oaf, you know, when he's talking to her, he's clearly forgotten her name and he's trying to, you know, he's talking about some other girl. And then he's sort of, you know, he's just able to just sort of in, sort of in a laser-like way engage with her and sort of make it about her in a way that she feels like she's important. Hmm. Her name is apparently Josie Moran, the cigarette girl. I don't know if I've ever seen her in anything else, but good Lord, is she pretty in this movie. She probably spent some time crashing in... uh... <laughs> I don't know. Most of the cast, so like Leo DiCaprio's couch for a while. <laughs> I like the way that they age Hughes. You know, like they give him the center part when he gets older, the slick back hair to sort of um, give him a little bit more of an older affect. He grows the mustache after the XF11 crash to hide the scar, scar on his face. Right. Right. He was he was healed by the regenerative properties of fresh squeezed orange <laughs> juice. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, 
there's, I mean, we've, I kind of feel like in the last, whatever, 50, 45 minutes, we've just kind of barely scratched the surface. Like there's, there's just a lot went into this. You know, I've tried over the years to read about Hughes a lot and it's hard. Like there's, his, his life is so big. Like almost all the books on Hughes just cover a piece of it. You know, like the guy did so much, you know, like any one of his careers, you mm-hmm. know, he was an industrialist, a filmmaker, you know, a, a pilot, an aviator, like the guy did so much, but like, I haven't been able to find a good all in one book on Howard Hughes. So I don't know if you know of one, let me know, but everything I've looked at both online and in the bookstore, is just sort of like a, a chunk here and a chunk there, but maybe, maybe that's just easier for a writer to tackle. Yeah, and I imagine a lot of them are sort of focused on trying to glean whatever they can about the the last decades. Um, right, about which there's the least information, you know, because by then he's completely out of the public eye. Right, and, and there's a lot of uh, rumor mongering going on, too. A lot of, you know, he they think he died in the air. Yeah, they think he died in the air on his, on his Learjet. From, yeah, he was coming from, I think, Acapulco to Methodist Hospital in Houston. He was at the Acapulco Princess, where, believe it or not, my parents took us as kids once on a business. My dad had a business trip, so we stayed at that hotel, hmm. although certainly not in the penthouse. Um, but apparently when he died, like they like they weren't even sure it was him. You know, like yeah. they had, a, I think they had to prove it by x-rays or something, but, you know, like he, he bore no resemblance to the man that the world remembered as, you know, Howard Hughes from the thirties and the forties. There's, there's one photo that I've seen, like if you Google, you know, Howard Hughes end of life or Howard Hughes death or st- things like that, like there's one photo of him just as this incredibly emaciated man with super long hair, but it's not even a good quality photo. Mm-hmm. That's all I was able to see. And for all I know, that's not even a photo of him. Who knows? Yeah, I, I don't know what's real at that point because he he'd squirreled himself away and surrounded himself with you know ha- helpers. Um, right, right. And uh, right, handpicked people, right? That he thought he could maybe trust. I like, by the way, uh, just not not changing topic when he says to Noah, "Do they work for me? <laughs> Everyone works for you, Howard." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, good, good movie. I don't know. I, again, I my personally, I I think it's of all the of all the Scorsese films. For me, it's it's the one I enjoy the most. And like, if it's on and I catch it in the middle, I tend to watch it to the end. Whereas, I kind of feel like I've seen Goodfellas too much now. I can't watch it so much anymore. But but this 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 still has a lot of uh, gas in the tank for me. Yeah, I, I have a hard time. Uh, I don't watch Goodfellas that much, but I I I still think about it and i still kind of quote it and uh, that's a tough one to beat for me personally but i mean look they you know this uh, he doesn't make has he made any really stinkers uh he made shutter island isn't that a scorsese movie i think so and didn't he also make um the one with jerry lewis the king of comedy isn't that him Yes. That's a pretty terrible movie. I haven't seen that in forever. That was a fairly yeah, early I one, mean, though. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, in the 80s, I think. But, you know, I mean, look, it's Scorsese. I mean, his a lot of directors would be happy to make a movie as good as Scorsese's missteps. Hmm. I actually think that, I really think, I mean, if you watch, for example, what was the movie 
that DiCaprio won the best actor for, uh, where he's mauled by the bear in the old West. Oh yeah. Yeah. The one that just, uh, uh I'm blanking not, on it. Cause I read the, I read the book. Uh, the and I said, Revenant. I the title, right. The Revenant. Um, I mean, he's much better in this than he is in the Revenant and he's good in the Revenant. But I mean, like this is a much tougher part. You know, this is, this is, uh, this is DiCaprio in full biopic mode, right? Cause he did this, he did, um, he did uh, Edgar, where he played, or J. Edgar Hoover. Mm-hmm. And then he did, didn't he do another biopic, DiCaprio? I think he might have. I might be mixing it with something else, but I thought that, uh, I thought that he did some other movie, but anyway, he had to sort of portray a character over a long, long period of time. <laughs> Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> Jordan Baffert. We should probably do that From one. Long Island. You know, it was just on this weekend. It's very funny you used to say that I was just watching a little bit of uh I was just watching a little bit of the the Wolf of Wall Street. Although it's weird, it was on network TV. Oh god. So like everything was edited out. You know, like you know, like there were long silent pauses. He's great in The Departed, too. I mean, don't get me wrong. DiCaprio's made some stinkers, too. But he's great in The Departed, as well. He's a real actor, too. The guy's not just... He's not a schlepper, you know? Yeah. <laughs> he's not a schlepper. <laughs> uh, that's really good. I, uh... Um, yeah. Wolf of Wall Street. Should we, I don't it. know how I can top he's not a schlepper. <laughs> I gotta know. Like, that's it. Like, <laughs> yeah, he's not such a schlepper. I um, praise indeed. And, <laughs> anything you want to? Oh, you know what? He was Frank Abagnale and Catch Me If You Can. I, right. I, just, I just had to pull it up. I knew he did one other where he played somebody real. Um, anything else you want to say before we break? We've been going about close to. We're closing on on about fifty fifty five minutes now. Yeah, I think that's I think that's good. But it, uh, talking about now, it sort of inspires me to to do another uh, Scorsese movie. <laughs> as long as it's not uh, the king of comedy I'm okay with <laughs> alright should we wrap there sounds good see All you right. next time uh, thanks everybody and uh, we'll be back next week see ya